And so we're talking about God being worthy and associated with God being worthy is this idea of worship because worship is the word that comes from ascribing worth to someone or something else. And Christians have this idea about worship that um, we're kind of the only ones who know about it. Last week I made a couple almost half-joking comments, but also serious comments, about the fact that everybody worships. Everybody likes to like the thing that they like, and everybody likes to tell other people that they like the thing that they like. And so we like to celebrate these things, and that celebrating of that other thing that we think is worthy is in some measure worship. We just reserve the word worship to talk about the biggest thing in your life. And we pretend the biggest thing in our life is God himself. But most of us looking in the mirror think more about ourselves and less about the God behind our very self. See, this is interesting. We are always just distracted by the things of this world. And so when I say the word worship, even that word gets our hearts distracted. We get distracted. Some Christians think that worship means going to church. And so right now there's a major debate. Is the world around us preventing Christians from worshiping? And some would say, you know, there's a church in Atlanta that just recently decided they're not going to have any live in-person worship services at all through the rest of the year. They're going to do nothing live and in person until January. And some people are accusing of that church of accusing that church of giving up its biblical responsibility to worship. And then there are other churches that say we are going to make sure we do everything absolutely as normally. We're going to do children's ministry. We're going to pack everybody in and all this kind of stuff because they're claiming that that's worship. And so they have to be. I mean, God tells us we're supposed to worship Him, and so there's only one possible way that we can worship Him, and that is in the United States gathering together with a bunch of people people who look and sound like you, so that you're in the same room singing similar songs that you all tend to like, and then listening to someone that you tend to like. But here's the weird thing. Even though Christians think that worship is church, it's not. Some Christians think that worship is the music. Some Christians think that worship is the preaching. But the truth of the matter is, worship is never worship unless it puts worth on someone outside yourself, particularly unless it puts worth on God. And so rather than us talking about worship as a thing, today I'm going to be talking about God being worthy. Because I think that's the concept that we have to come back to in order for us to really understand what it really means to say God is our heavenly dad. The fact that he's worthy changes a lot. I want to take you into Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 4, John has a vision where, where God actually calls him up into heaven and he sees the heavenly throne room. And what you're going to find is that it looks almost exactly the same in Revelation as it did in Isaiah or in Ezekiel or in Daniel. Go there with me. Revelation chapter 4. We're going to pick it up in verse 2. He says, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. You've seen that picture before. Ezekiel. There was a throne, and someone was sitting on it. Uh, You you saw uh, in the other pictures that we've seen, there's someone on a throne, and someone is throne and someone is sitting on it. Verse 3, And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Now, let's just remind ourselves how many colors are in a rainbow? Between six and seven, depending on how you count, whether you count indigo as a separate color or not. You know, it depends on how you count the thing. But guess what? This will surprise you. How many colors are in an emerald? 
Clearly, this rainbow does not look like an emerald, or emeralds don't look like rainbows or something. What we have here, just like in every other description of heaven, is a description that is beyond description. Is a person who's looking at something they cannot say. Looking at something they cannot express. And so he sees a something that looks like a rainbow, but it's shining. It's not a rainbow like we usually see. This rainbow is shining. And it's not a rainbow like we've normally seen. This rainbow is like emerald. And when have you ever seen an emerald shining? It's an amazing picture. And what we are supposed to take from this is not that there is a miraculous emerald in the world that looks like a shining rainbow. What we're supposed to take from this is the idea that if we were to truly see heaven, we would not be able to put it into human words. Verse 4, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And I'm not going to dig into the details of every single bit of symbolism here, but 24 thrones, for anyone who was reading this, they would have expected that those 24 thrones represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles that Jesus sent out. Whether one of those thrones represents Judas, I would think probably not. But that other person, is it Paul? Is it Matthias? Is it someone else? I don't know. But he never gives us the names on those thrones, and there's a good reason we never get the names on those thrones. It's just, we know there are 24 of them. Anyway, keep going. He says, <laughs> verse 5, from the throne, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Again, no one knows what that means. No one knows if this is the sevenfold spirit of God or if there are seven independent spirits of God somehow. We don't have a full answer on this. This is John trying to describe heaven using his language. Also, in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal. Exactly like previous descriptions we've heard, where there's this flat something or other. I think Ezekiel called it a vault, but uh, here this John is calling it a sea. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying. And here we get the same picture that we saw in Ezekiel, or very similar to Isaiah. In other words, the point that I'm trying to make is that these guys aren't making this stuff up. They're actually seeing something, and what they're seeing looks to a human being very similar, no matter which human being you are, but no one has the ability to fully explain it or describe it. But they all get this part right, exactly right. Day and night they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Let's just admit something here that I don't think a lot of Christians recognize often and I don't recognize it often enough. Worship, when it comes to God, is really illogical. Let's just make this uh, obvious, okay? Worship is illogical, and I'll tell you why it's illogical. Because there is nothing that can come out of my mouth 
that can compare with what's already going on there. And there's nothing that can come out of my mouth that can increase what's already going on there. And there's nothing that can come out of my mouth that will in any way improve the situation around God's throne. I have never been able to speak in any way like these creatures around the throne. God's glory is so great. His holiness is so distant. Everything about God is so wonderful that here is the fundamental truth about human worship. Human worship does not improve God's life. God is not sitting at home thinking to himself, you know what? My life is just doing 80% today. What would really make it good is if I could get one of those human beings to tell me I'm cool. You see, sometimes we get this picture in our minds that God is this needy individual, that he's this needy entity of some kind, and that he needs us to recognize how good he is, to pat him on the back and to clap for him because he's so much like a Hollywood celebrity that if we don't honor him, he's going to have a mental breakdown. Honestly, that's the way people felt about the gods of the past. But the God of the Bible has never been that God. The God of the Bible has never been the needy God. The God of the Bible is the God who is sitting on a throne Surrounded by so much glory, it's unfathomable. And the fact that he would even see us or pay attention to us is unimaginable. But there's a detail. A lot of times in here, in this picture, we get the wrong idea of what worship is. I want to tell you a little story that might not make a lot of sense right now, but I think it will by the end. A number of years ago, I wanted to improve my public speaking. So I do public speaking on a regular basis. It's my job. Every single Sunday, I have to, before that Sunday, I have to prepare some kind of speech, and then I have to deliver it. And every now and then, I'm called upon to do something impromptu, to do something just sort of off the cuff. And so as a result, this is kind of my job, doing public speaking kinds of things. But I wanted to be in an environment where I could be criticized and critiqued, but not feel like it was coming from my church family. So... I joined Toastmasters, and Toastmasters is this organization where people get together and they give miniature speeches, and then they criticize each other, they critique each other, they give each other feedback, and tell each other what they did right and what they did wrong. And so I wanted to get some feedback in a place that wasn't people who I care about in the church, you know, telling me that I did something poorly, because that hurts me when people tell me I did something poorly, even though I need to be more humble and receive it. Anyway, so I joined Toastmasters. And here I am, surrounded by people, and I was at a Purdue Toastmasters club, and in this club, about half of the people were English as a second language people. They were people from uh, some country in Asia who were here at Purdue trying to learn how to speak English better, and so they had joined Toastmasters to be forced to give speeches in English so that they could practice their English. So that was half the group. uh, A third of the group were older people who'd been in Toastmasters for ages because that was just the group that they joined when they were in their 30s and they had stuck with it. And then there was another group of people who were just, you know, college students who were like PhD students, uh, but they're, they're from America, but they wanted to work on their presentation skills. And so they were in that club too. And so, of course, I'm the only professional speaker. I felt like there's a TV show called Friends where one day Monica, who's a professional chef, goes to a cooking class and she makes the best 
best cookies in the room and everything, but she's sort of a ringer. I felt like a ringer because every time I did a speech, Toastmasters, the people around me in, in the Toastmasters club were like, I have no criticism for that, Jeff. That was perfect. And so I thought about joining a different Toastmasters club, but I got really friendly with these people. And so now I'm friends with these people, and now they're learning from me. And so it was boosting my ego, but at the same time, I was worried about some stuff. Anyway, a time came where they did a speech competition. And I thought, well, this will be fun. I'll get in in an environment where there are better, more accomplished speakers from other Toastmasters clubs, and we can do this thing, you know, cooperatively. So I join the the speaking competition, and I easily win the competition in my club. And then a couple clubs get together, and I easily win that one. And then we go on to the regionals, and then to the state. And so I go to the state competition, which is actually a regional thing that involves multiple states, and I down in Indianapolis, and I totally win that thing. I've got a glass trophy. I thought about bringing it, but then again, I'm bragging enough about the thing. You don't need. I don't need to show and tell. So anyway. I win the trophy, and clearly the guy who's number two, who won number two, he did a great speech. It was a wonderful speech, but clearly he's not a professional speaker. I mean, I'm paid to do this all the time, and so it's my job. And so I'm thinking this whole time, the whole time I'm feeling guilty. I really wanted to get better. I really wanted to get some good feedback from people. I really wanted to be challenged in my public speaking abilities. I really was having fun, but I really was winning easily. And right at that point in time, right at that point in time, the national championships, sorry, the international championships for Toastmasters were going to happen in Palm Springs, California, about two hours away from my family's home in Apple Valley, California. And so I could get a free, all expenses paid trip out to Palm Springs because I had won this thing and hang out with my family too. It was such an amazing thing. But I felt guilty. Because see... I didn't feel worthy of the award because I had, A, a natural talent that had been honed through years of practice and professional training, and this other guy was just working really hard without any of those other advantages. And I felt really bad. I felt really guilty. And so I had this dilemma. Do I get the free trip out to my hometown or do I stay here and help the church build out its Braddock building. Anyway, I used the excuse of staying here to help the church build out the Braddock building. And I told this other fellow, I was like, man, you should go. You should go and do that. I have to stay here for church responsibility, and so you should go out there and do it. And he went out there and he won second place, which was an amazing thing for him to have accomplished out there. And he and I have remained Facebook friends even till now. But here's the thing. Sometimes when we view worship, we think about it that way. And I want to ask you the question, who is God to you? Is God the talented individual with all the professional training and all the assets and all the resources? And you wonder, do you really need to pat that guy on the back because he's already got it all? Is God the underdog? The one that, you know what, he just really deserves a hand up because, listen, Listen, he's, he's so good. We have to give him a hand up. And quite often when it comes to God, we feel like we're in this dilemma. Why should I worship a God who's already above all things unless he's a God who is needy somehow? And that whole picture is wrong. Because I want to remind you of something that happened in this story. 
I'll give you the blank first, and then let's look at the verse that it comes from after that. The phrase is this, human worship means giving up our crowns. Giving up our crowns. Let me show you what I mean. In Revelation 4, there was a very important verse that we looked at. I'll put it up so you guys can see it. But in in Revelation 4, we're going to pick it up at verse 9. It says, Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. And that's a thing that Christians have paid attention to quite a lot. They've paid attention to this idea that the 24 uh, elders uh, have laid their crowns at the feet. There's even songs about that. We bow down, we lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. And there's this idea of laying crowns down at the feet of Jesus, which is something that Christians have talked about for quite a bit. But I want to ask you the question, whose crowns are they? Look at verse 4. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. These aren't people who just have crowns because they found them. These are people who have thrones, These 24 elders have actual thrones they're sitting on and crowns on their head. Somehow they have earned this recognition. They have earned this recognition. They deserve this recognition. They deserve those thrones, we might think. They deserve those crowns, we might think. And this is why it's important. They don't lay crowns at the feet of Jesus. They lay their crowns at God's feet. They have earned these crowns. They deserve these crowns, but they put them at his feet. And here's the question. Why would they do such a thing? Because they got the crowns from God. They got the thrones from God. Write it down this way. Because God made the crowns and us. Did you see that? You are worthy, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. When the Bible says God is worthy, what we're talking about is that God has something that is intrinsic worth. And when he has something that is intrinsic worth, and I have something that is given worth. So God has intrinsic worth, and from his intrinsic worth, he has given these fellows a crown. They recognize the crown is theirs, but not theirs. The crown is theirs, because they've earned it. But God is the one who gave it to them. God is the one who gave them that throne. God is the source of everything. God the Father is worthy because he's the source of everything. He's the source of everything. I'll give you another story. This one is not true. Never happened to me. Uh, But just imagine it along with me. Imagine my dad comes up to me and he says to me, Jeff, I've got $50. You want to do something fun? I say, yeah, let's do something fun. He says, I've got $50. Let's go downtown and let's see what good we can accomplish with $50. 
And I say, okay, that sounds kind of interesting. We're going to go downtown and we're going to try to do good for other people with these $50. And he hands it all to me. He says, Jeff, here you go. Let's go downtown and do some good. So we go downtown. I've got $50 in my hands or in my pocket somewhere. And I find a guy. He's homeless. He's, he's holding a sign. And there's something about what is written on the sign. There's something about a circumstance. There's something about this person. I, I don't remember all the details about this person. But, you know, there's something about him that I think I really want to help out this person. So I pull out $10 and I give it to this guy. $10 goes to this guy. And I walk away from that guy feeling, man, I am a generous person. I had $50 and I gave $10. I gave one fifth. I gave 20% of what I had to this fellow. I'm feeling generous. And so as I'm walking away, the homeless man yells out and he says, hey man, you're such a generous guy. And I'm thinking, yeah, I am. He goes, no one has treated me as nicely as you've treated me all day, all week. And I'm like, yeah, no one's been as nice to him as I've been. And so I'm feeling really good about myself. And he says, I just want to thank you for being such an incredibly generous person. And I'm like, yeah, but here's the question. What should I say back to that homeless man? Thanks, homeless man. I'm glad you noticed my generosity. I'm glad you noticed how nice I am. I'm glad you noticed what a great person I am. Let's just be honest. The only proper thing for me to say is, well, it was my dad's idea and his money. It was my dad's money, his resources, and it was his idea. He's the one who said, let's do this. That's the appropriate response. It's, it's taking something. Now, let's be honest about this. I'm the one who was holding the cash. I'm the one who made the decision. I'm the one who saw the homeless man. I'm the one who chose to give it to that homeless man. I do, let's be honest, I do deserve thanks because I made that choice and I had power over the assets. And so, yes, I deserve thanks, but there's a person in my midst who is more worthy. Does this make sense? There's a person in my midst who is more worthy. I deserve thanks, but there's a different person who's more worthy. If you think of worth and praise as two things that sort of relate to each other, worth is the thing that receives praise. And if praise is flowing, if it's out there, the thing that should get the praise is the thing that is worth more. And so if this thing is worth more, think of it like a magnet. This is a giant magnet. I'm a tiny little magnet of worth. But this is a giant magnet of worth. And so if there's any praise out there, it should go to the big magnet of worth and not to me. It's not a question of whether or not I've done something good that deserves thanks. It's a question of who is worthy. You are worthy. Uh, in a few minutes, in a few minutes, Rick, we can. I love Jesus too. Let's talk afterwards, Rick, okay? Thanks, man. So what we're going to say, look at verse 11 here. He says, you are worthy, our Lord and God. You are worthy, for you created all things. Go on. I want to take you through chapter 5. I'm just going to read it quickly, make a couple comments, and then we'll close it out. Chapter 5, he says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll 
with riding on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one who was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. I heard it was a lion. I looked and it was a lamb. I heard it was victorious. And I looked and it was slain. Standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he'd taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. The lamb is at the center of the throne, but the lamb takes from the one seated on the throne a scroll. So the one seated on the throne has a scroll. The lamb goes and takes the scroll. And now the lamb has the scroll and the people sing a new song. Verse nine, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God. You redeemed would be a word we would use. Persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Again, this worthy idea shows up. But this time it's Jesus. This time it's the one who was slain, but who's also victorious. It's Jesus. And so it said that God was worthy because he created all things. The one on the throne is worthy because he created all things. But now it says that Jesus, the lamb, the son, he's worthy because he was slain and he was raised and he redeemed. So he's the slain and raised redeemer. So Jesus is worthy because he's the slain and raised redeemer. The one on the throne is worthy because he created all things. And yet somehow we've got both of these. So the question is, who is worthy? Who is the only one who is worthy because he created all things? The one on the throne. But but the only one who's worthy is the one who was slain and raised and redeemed. And so somehow we've got both of these pictures. And then John culminates it when he says... To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be honor and glory and power and praise. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. There's this, there's this duality and this separateness. The Father is not more worthy than the Son. The Son is not more worthy than the Father. The Father has the scroll. The Son takes the scroll. Listen, I'll 
I'll phrase it this way. God is worthy. Our heavenly dad is worthy because, whoa. Like, whoa. Like, the more you learn about who God is, the more you have to shut up. The more you learn about who God is, the more you have to say his appearance was like the glory. It was a rainbow that was an emerald, but it was shining. The more you know about God, the more you know he's like three but one. The more you know about God, the more you say, whoa, I just don't get it. And that's sort of the point. The Father and the Son are one. Now, in this passage, John doesn't mention anything about the Spirit. He mentions something about the spirits of God. And we don't exactly know how those things are related, but we do know that the activity of the seven spirits he mentions in Revelation is the same as the activity of the Holy Spirit of God that we're taught throughout the whole New Testament. And so the basic idea that we get is that there's the Father who's on the throne, there's the Son who came, died, and rose, and there's the Spirit who has been sent throughout the world to bring us to worship. But for one last time, let me show you that verse 13 again. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Here's my question to you and to me. Is there any praise in me? Who is worthy to receive that praise? Is there any praise that comes in my direction? Who is worthy to receive that praise? Is there anything glorious in me? Is there any kind of glory that comes in my direction? Who is worthy to receive that glory? Is there any goodness that is in me? Is there any goodness that comes in my direction? Who is worthy to receive that goodness? Is there any honor that is in me? Is there any honor that comes in my direction? Who is the one who is worthy to receive that honor? Is there any power that I have in me? And is there any power that comes in my direction? Who is worthy to receive that power? The question about worship is not whether or not it makes me feel good. It's not about whether I enjoy it. It's not about the method. It's not about the place. It's not about the location. It's not about the schedule. It's not about the day of the week. Worship has nothing to do with all of the things that we choose for ourselves. Worship has everything everything to do with who is worthy. I don't sing songs because those songs make me feel good. I sing songs that make me feel good, yes. And I sing, I invite myself into places that make me feel good. And I experience experiences that make me feel good. And I appreciate all those things. But none of that is ever to be about me. It's never to be about me. It can't ever be about me because only my dad is worthy. When it comes to worship, what we do is we say there's a whole lot of praise floating around in this world and only one is worthy. There's a whole lot of honor floating around in this world and only one 
is worthy. There's a whole lot of power floating around in this world, and only one is worthy. There's a whole lot of glory floating around in this world, and only one is worthy. Until I run out of praise, until I run out of honor, until I run out of anything glorious in me, until I run out of any power, there is one who is worthy of all of it. And so I bring to him my worship. In whatever form it shows up in, fine. Forms are fine. What I need to recognize is that he and he alone is worthy. I'm going to say a prayer for us, and then we're going to spend some time singing three songs. And I picked uh, some favorite songs. I picked some longer songs uh, for us. But I want you at home, if you're here in the room... I want you to spend some moments recognizing that it's not about the song. It's about the one who is worthy. And what is my life doing to receive and redirect? What is my life doing to reflect and to offer worth, worship to the one who's worthy? I'm going to pray and then we're going to end our time with these songs. Let's close our eyes and calm our hearts, and ask for God to be at work in our midst. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And His plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.